There's one interesting thing that uh, I experienced when I was down in tech, or Florida at the convention this week, and that was this. You realize how diverse the church really is. Um, we certainly are a very diverse part of, of the church. There were people who couldn't believe that there were former Catholics in our church. I mean, they, they goggled. They were, what? Really? Um, but likewise, there were some of their experiences that were um, surfaced to me as, as alien, or at least things that are a, at a great distance from me were very close to them. There, was people there, there were people there who had lost their homes to the flooding in Nashville. And I found myself going, oh yeah, there was flooding in Nashville. And even there was a gentleman there, I don't know if you know that Oklahoma had pretty big rains the other day, and I'm on the bus coming from the airport, and one of the gentlemen who's on the bus says his deacon just essentially lost his house. It started a fire, blew up his cars. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know it rained in Oklahoma. And then when the issue, the issue of immigration came up, whew, man, that, I, thought I, knew what I, I thought I knew what I knew. I don't know anything. There were churches that were in great tension. Some churches had... Uh, you could tell we're wrestling with having these beliefs on one hand and dealing with the fact that some of their sister churches in their town were 50% unregistered members. And how do you deal with that when the gospel is blossoming among the illegal aliens in your own community? So I realized what a distance I was. But the biggest and most significant thing that I realized that we are at a distance here, but they're right up front on it, is this issue of the oil spill in the Gulf. Man, that is, if you are Gulf state, that is a major concern right now. You feel helpless. You're nervous. You don't know how it's going to all the ripple, how it's going to ripple back through your state. There's a lot of concern there. And, and we've been calling, we're calling this sermon series Tackle Box because we're uh, focusing on this verse, Mark 1.17, where Christ tells Peter he'll make him a fisher of men. And we, we commented last week that Mark is, the book of Mark is essentially the words and illustrations that Peter would use to testify about the life of Christ and bring people into the boat kind of the net he would cast to draw people in, or the lure he would use to draw people in. The book is the tackle box of Peter. And all my, all my life, when I've thought about this imagery, I've always thought about fishing. I mean, I imagine that's pretty natural. We think about fishing, but I've always thought we're fishing on a clean lake, just a, a lake of blue water. And it's been this idea of the spill in the Gulf that has called this into question for me of, what am I really fishing in? Because I don't really think we're pulling people into the boat of Christ from some pristine lake. We're fishing in a cesspool, is what we're doing. Our boat, this boat called the church, which is calling people to Christ, is not fishing people out of, of something that they're really better off in. It isn't like bad news when you get the person in the boat. You're saving them. This is a massive rescue operation. This is more like... Come and I will make you rescuer of oily birds. Is really the idea that's happening here. Is what is the issue is, is there is this massive spill in the lake in which we're fishing, and it's killing everything except what we can get in the boat. 
Will you read with me Mark 1, verses 2 through 13? It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing the sins they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels attended him. Now for time this morning, I want to begin our focus and kind of our meditation on this idea of what does it mean when the prophet says, make straight paths for the Lord. This idea of making a straight path for the Lord. What, what is... What's the implication there? The prophet writes, and actually it's Malachi and Isaiah, believe it or not. It says in the words of Isaiah, Isaiah is the thrust of the quotation, but it begins in Malachi. There's three ideas that come out of that prophecy. The first is there's going to be a messenger. The second is he's going to be in the wilderness or the desert. And the third is he's going to be crying out this message Make a straight path for the Lord. And then John, or excuse me, Mark moves right into verse 4 and says this, And so John came baptizing in the desert. See what he's doing? Mark is saying, John is exactly that person. The voice crying out in the desert, make a straight path. He says, and so John came. Baptizing in the desert. So if Mark... In writing about John, if he's saying that John is this messenger and that John is bringing this message in the desert place, what is the straight path? What's the message of John the Baptist? It's this. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the message. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, the Lord is preparing to send His his Son to earth, and the only thing that He wants to preface the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus is the words, repent. Repent. 
John the Baptist is the forerunner. He's the herald of this impending invasion of Christ. Imagine John the Baptist as Paul Revere, and he's riding through the town, and he's not hollering to arms, to arms. He's saying, we are about to be invaded by God. Repent. That's the message. Imagine, this is, he's reshaping the whole expectation of the kingdom. All of the Hebrew people that are coming out, and it says it in verse 5, it says, all the people in Judea and the surrounding region came out to receive this. He was unbelievably popular, and they have this expectation that the anointed one of God is going to come and is going to liberate them from the Romans, or is going to give them true freedom, or is going to establish the kingdom of the Hebrew people above on a high hill, and that they'll live in peace and harmony. And they're coming out to John to hear about this. They know he's, they ask him if he's Elijah. They have all of these expectations, and he says, repent. In fact, that's always his message. Repent. When he sees somebody, he never, it doesn't ever seem like he ever wants to talk about anything but their sin. The Pharisees show up, he goes, what did you come out here for? You whitewashed tombs. King, the king is infatuated with John the Baptist, and John says, you're sleeping incestuously with a family member. John's mission is to extract the sin of the people and call it to repentance. And that is the preface to all of the good news. The beginning of the good news about and for Jesus, the anointed Son of God, is repent. Now, I think the church, the broad church, does an okay job holding to the message that there is just one path to God. We do an okay job with that. We know our verses. We know that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to me except, or no man comes to the Father except through me. We know those passages. We also know the ones in Matthew about wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to righteousness. We know these. We understand how to preach there's only one way to heaven. And even our apologetics, the way we defend the faith, we defend it pretty well on the grounds of saying Christianity is exclusive about its claim for salvation, that there is no path to salvation but through Jesus Christ. We're pretty good at that. We're pretty good at saying it isn't Buddhism, it isn't Mormonism, it isn't Islam, it isn't Hinduism, it isn't secularism, it isn't any of these things. It has to be Christianity. We do an okay job at saying that it is a narrow path. But we do a miserable job of giving people a straight path. We, we say it's narrow. We say it's this one narrow path, but we do such a bad job of giving them a straight path. Rather, what we do is we say it's a narrow path that's hard to get on, and then in the, in the false or half-truth ways we talk about it, we give this meandering, winding, narrow, zigzagging path that goes across the truth of Christ. And it goes all over the place. And it goes to the very places that we're, it goes to the very false teachings of these other faiths and the way it meanders. I want to give you some examples of how we do this. When you herald the king this way, when you act as the baptizer and you herald the kingdom of God to someone in this way, God wants to bless you. 
God wants to bless you. Now that's true, but it is not a straight path. It's not a straight path. The straight path is repent. God wants to bless you. What if you're saying this to a person whose entire obsession in life is wealth? When you preach God wants to bless you, what are they hearing? God wants to give me more wealth. What if you say to a woman who's never been able to have children and she has ordered her entire life around the absence of a child and yearns to have a child and you preach to her, God wants to bless you. What are you doing? You're unconsciously and unintentionally telling her to grip that idol even harder and harder and harder because God wants to bless her. It is true, but it is not a straight path. The straight path is The salvation that comes to us through the repentance of sins and the faith in Jesus Christ is a blessing. That is the blessing. Why do we ignore the blessing? It's supposed to be hard and uncomfortable to say. It's the problem. It's the problem. When you tell somebody, God wants you to do good things, do good works, that's true. It is true, but it is not a straight path. That's a windy path that leads people away from the kingdom, just like it might lead people towards the kingdom. But they're going to cross the narrow path back and forth, trying to figure out what what does it mean? They're going to have massive guilt in their life that they're not doing good enough, or they're going to have massive arrogance in their life because they're doing so well, rather than... The straight path, which is because of the salvation of Jesus Christ that comes to us because of his glorious mercy and on account of our heartfelt repentance, we are free and able to worship him through good works. That is a straight path. When you herald the king this way, God wants you to show Christ's compassion to others. When you say, ah, the whole purpose, really the whole message is do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's the golden rule. It's all about love. It's true. But that is not a straight path. That is a messed up, winding path that will mislead people one way and mislead them another. Is the point of the kingdom really to feed If so, why does Jesus feed 5,000 and then recede in a boat and not do it again? Why doesn't he just come and feed? If you try to express compassion or preach compassion apart from repentance, you are going down a failed and faulty path pathway. You know where real compassion comes from? Real compassion doesn't come from looking down on someone who doesn't have and saying, oh, we, let's, let's give them crumbs on the table. Real compassion comes from a repentant heart that realizes the only reason I'm not floating in that cesspool of an oil mess is because Jesus Christ pulled me out. That I'm no better. That I may be worse but for the grace of God. That is where real compassion shows up. Someone who has mastered that kind of compassion will dive right back in to pull someone out. 
But when we have this, these, these zigzaggy, windy paths, we may be on a narrow path, but we're just crossing back and forth on it. And we call people out of Islam, but then we say, but do good works. And they go right back into the real problem. The problem is not the word Islam. The problem is the teaching. We call someone right out of a legalist faith and they go right back in or we call them right out of a, a, a free lifestyle of pleasure and then we say, you're free in Christ and they go right back in. The straight path is repentance. It's repentance. In every possible way that you want to think about the good news of Jesus, the anointed Son of God in your life, start it from a position of repentance. Wake up in the morning and, re- and, and each morning tell yourself, I remember what I once was, and I'm not. And just see how your day goes. If you can make that one habit of rising each morning and going, I was what I am not because of Jesus. Let me straighten the path a little more for you here. Every human being on the entire planet, without exception, is sinful is wicked. There is no one righteous, not one. In all eternity, every human being, without exception, will spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. In the Bible, you find two categories. You find blessings and curses. You find light and dark. You find heaven, hell, life, death. That's the reality. This is the reality. Repent For the kingdom of God is at hand. Make a straight path so that people might choose life rather than darkness. In this repentance, this straight path is expressed through the teachings of baptism. Let me read verses 7 and 8 for you again. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk about baptism here for a bit. And I'm going to... I'm going to deal with the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. Because they're different, and the scriptures recognize they're different. What I want to say up front, though, is there's, a, there's always a danger of getting uh, stuck in the particulars of baptism and losing the sight. Baptism is an expression of the soul. That's what God cares about. God cares about the expression of your soul, and baptism is that expression. That's why we're Baptists, by the way. Before we were ever a denomination, we were a theological position. We believe that baptism is an expression of a reality that's in the soul. So you may not know why that's important now, and it may not even be important to you during this, this time, but one day, remember I said it, because it's good. God judges the soul, so let's, let's try not to get caught on the technical issues. Nonetheless, there are two baptisms, and I want us to look at John's baptism by itself right now, just let's isolate John's baptism, and I want you to answer this question for yourself. If we're called to repentance, that's what John's doing. We're called to repentance. Here's the question. Does the heartfelt expression of a deeply repentant soul find hope for salvation according to the baptism 
of John. In other words, is the baptism of John sufficient unto salvation? Is it a sufficient expression of the soul? In light of the baptism of Christ coming up, let's ask these questions. When people are lined up for John the Baptist, all through Judea, all over the countryside in Jerusalem, they come, there's this line of people. When, they, when John brings them down into the water and he raises them back up, does the Spirit of God descend upon them like a dove? No. Does God rip the sky open and speak down, you are my son whom I love and you I am well pleased? No. Nothing happens. He says, be repentant. Be repentant for the forgiveness of your sins. But they come down, they go up, there's no spirit given, there's no approval of the Father, and they go on their way. Now why is that? It's because it is not sufficient. Let's think of it with the perspective of this oil spill in the Gulf. If British Petroleum got up this very same podium, and in front of all of America and the Gulf Coast, Gulf Coast community, they said this, they said, we are We would have do anything for this not to happen. Now, you, even on your best day, would say, well, I appreciate you being sorry. We're thankful that you have a repentant heart. But there are thousands of gallons of oil spilling out of the Gulf right now. I don't care about sorry. What's the problem? Fix the problem. There's this massive issue of compensation, of correction and compensation. There is an ocean right now that's becoming black with death. And you want to say you're sorry? Even on our best day, that's how we feel. And here's the deal. Even if, they, they, even if compensation were possible, there's this second question, which is criminal negligence. I understand that you wish it had not happened. Of course you wish it had not happened. What I'm curious is, did you purposely take shortcuts? I mean, these are the questions, this is the questions America's asking, right? So there's the issue of, are you sorry? But then there's, it's not enough to be sorry. You've got to fix it. And it's still not enough to fix it if the issue was criminally negligent in the first place. Saying sorry is just not enough. There needs to be compensation, and if there was crime, there needs to be judgment. And it is exactly the same with us. You want to say you're sorry to the Lord? Well, you have to make compensation. You have to make compensation for your life. In fact, there's some of us, we live this, this, this modest little heresy. We say we're going to be really repentant before the Lord, and we are going to make compensation in our life as though we can descend deep into the darkest depths of our cold black soul and cap the spill. We can't even get down there. There's no way that we can stop it. It's so deep in us, and every time it's coming out, and it's bubbling up, and it's on us, and it's around us, and it's spreading, and it affects those around us. You cannot compensate for the spill in your life. It's coming. And here's the deal. Even if you could, 
You have been criminally negligent in it. It's not just a problem. This is an issue of sin. It's all of us. Right? We have sucked from the earth every pleasure we can think of. And we're spilling it around and we're breaking lives around us. You, you don't think your sin is doing this? It's always doing this. Everything you do either gives life or it takes life. And so all around you, people are being messed up and life is being brought down because you have tapped the earth for your own will. So no, according to the baptism of John, your repentance is not sufficient. You cannot compensate and you have been criminally negligent and so you're subject to judgment. Now, the baptism of Christ. When Jesus Christ comes up out of the water, does the Spirit descend upon him like a dove? Yes. Why? Because he's wholly righteous. He has, there's no filth in him. Does the Lord rip the sky open and say, you are my son whom I love and you I am well pleased? Yes, the baptism that Jesus Christ offers and the baptism that we receive through our soul, the expression of our soul as it's performed in baptism, this baptism is a different kind of baptism. It is a baptism where the Spirit is promised to us and the approval of God is given to us. Jesus says, I'm going, but I'm sending my Spirit to be with you. Not only that, he says, you've received the rights of sonship through faith in me. Do you see what's been given by Christ? Now, what has happened here? How is it that the baptism of Christ gives us these things, but the baptism of John doesn't? Has God changed? If we're both equally repentant, we say we're sorry to God. Does he not still demand compensation? Yes, he does. But when he demands compensation now, Christ stands before us saying, Behold, I make all things new. Even if God said, look at this mess, Jesus, said, Jesus says, I'm making a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm going to raise my people up in a new body that's going to be pure as snow, white and sinless, without stain. There's nothing here. God, Jesus Christ is saying, I will more than compensate for the disaster on this planet. And when the accuser stands before you and he's standing before God and he's pointing at you and he's sticking his finger in your chest saying, but this wasn't a mishap. These people were criminally negligent. This is what I hope will happen. I hope that the saints around begin to sing. And I hope they gather around and they begin to sing the song in Isaiah, and I, I, I hope that they point at Jesus sitting now beside the Father, and they say this, but surely he took our infirmities. And he carried our sorrows, yet we were considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace is upon him. By his wounds we are healed. And you'll hear Satan reply from the same song, because that's how he does it. He'll say, but they are all like sheep. 
and they've gone astray. Each have gone their own way. And then God will reply in his own song these lines. And I have laid upon him the iniquity of them all. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for our transgressions. The narrow path is a straight path. Christ came and suffered death so that the repentant might find salvation. Salvation. 